The Equest Podcast, Fun's Industry Conversations. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to this episode of The Equest Podcast with me, Danny Lawler. If you're new to the podcast, do make sure to hit the subscribe button and also be sure to share and like. On this episode of The Equest Podcast, I'm joined by Anne Shields of FinLexus, who is a sustainability expert with a particular focus on regulatory compliance. With sustainability and ESG being so high on the to-do list for so many in the financial services industry, I thought it'd be great to get Anne on the show to chat about some of the regulatory compliance issues that are out there, some of the deadlines that are looming, and there are many. Also was interested to know whether we should be aiming for perfection even on day one, or whether good enough is good enough as those deadlines roll around and still a lot of the detail is to be settled. But more than that, I'm interested to know about how firms in the financial services industry, including professional services firms, approach their own uh, issues on sustainability. So how do they run their own business so that they are not only uh, talking the talk, but walking the walk and showing that their business is sustainable uh, and doing its best for the environment and the local area as well. So thankfully, Anne is able to answer all of those questions and chat with some great insights uh, on both regulatory compliance and the deadlines coming up and the practical steps that businesses are taking and also some of the innovations that she's seeing firms uh, undertake and some of the challenges that they're working their way through as we all hopefully try to become more sustainable and more in tune with the needs of the planet. So on that note, let's get on with the podcast. The Equest Podcast, Funds Industry Conversations. Hello, Anne, and welcome to the Equest Podcast. Hi, Danny. Thanks very much for having me. Looking forward well, to the conversation. It's great to have a sustainability expert on the podcast. Good. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Um, and uh, am I just a sustainability expert? Yeah, we'll, 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 I'm, I'm trying, trying my best. Well, what is a sustainability expert? Uh, well, for me, I guess the answer to that would be uh, very broad ranging because obviously sustainability covers so many aspects of, of our uh, society, our economy, um, our businesses. Um, but in my case, for me, I would very much focus in on, on sustainable finance and, and sustainable sustainability in particular in regulated financial services entities. It's such a topical issue at the moment. Um, do you find that it arrives at every conversation you have with regulated firms and every conference that you go to? It, it does. Now, I am, I'm in that space <laughs> because the, the, the business that I run is, is a sustainable finance regulatory consultancy. So, so it is, it is all consuming for me at the moment. But uh, the reason I moved into this area was because in, in my previous existence if you like as, as an asset management and investment funds lawyer more and more of the conversations were around sustainability and ESG I guess which you know if we want to put ESG in context and what's the difference between it and sustainability uh, for me the way I look at it is that ESG is very much the lens through which financial institutions look at sustainability uh, so yeah I have lots of conversations about sustainability financial services and ESG. Uh, I wonder I know, obviously, with, with your background and, and role, it's the first thing people have probably talked to you about. But have you noticed a shift in how people talk about sustainability over the last little while or, or how, they, how they think about it and how they view it and whether it's become more important to them or more, more genuine to them? 
it's it's definitely becoming a driver of business I would think rather than something which um was maybe an add-on or a value add so so I would say if, if you wanted to think about it in terms of moving from CSR in, in, a, in a corporate sustainable corporate sustainability and responsibility towards a more of a uh, an integrated approach to sustainability in business. And when you work with firms, uh, and we're going to talk in a little while about, I guess, upcoming deadlines and, and how that affects asset managers, particularly in investment funds. But, um, but more broadly, when you work with firms, what's the, what's the approach that you take if they come and say, Geez, you know, we really need to up our game on sustainability? So I like to look at, if you're kind of stepping back and looking at a, a macro level for an organization, I like to look at it in three pillars, really, or, or three areas. The first area I'd look at would be internal, and that would be a firm's operations and how do you integrate sustainability into your operations. So for a professional services firm, you know, that's something like, you know, how, how are you dealing with with energy and environment issues um how are you dealing with how you interact with communities and the society in which you operate so that goes towards an organization's social license to operate really um, and then you know for for example for for something like law firms you would talk about a pro bono practice and, and how that all um drives and, and integrates into your business uh, so really the first the first pillar very much much operations um, uh, and that can be anything, as I said, from the energy piece where you're measuring your greenhouse gas emissions, you're maybe setting science-based targets uh, to put your organization on a decarbonization pathway in terms of its operations. So that's quite a technical um, science-based piece, or should be at least, um, certainly on the environment side, maybe less so on the social. So that's what I like to think of as the internal operations piece. Then the other second pillar really is the external or client facing piece and that's really around right well I need to understand what are the drivers for sustainability from my clients and how can I best support that so uh, from a fund perspective if we want to talk about funds really this is the what, what kind of products are the asset managers building um, are they are they products which um, are have ESG? Are they sustainable investment products? Um, and we'll come on to, I guess, talk about SFDR and, and products that disclose as Article 8 or Article 9 funds. So it's really about, you know, how can I support my clients? That's the second piece. So that's the internal client pieces is the external piece. And then overlapping both of those is something I would look at as the transparency piece. It is linked to the internal and external pieces, uh, but the transparency bit would be more around, right, what am I saying to the market? And um, what are my public commitments? Am I committing to a net zero target? Um, am I, am I um, maybe aligning with um, a collaborative initiative like Business in the Community and signing up to uh, its low carbon pledge or its inclusivity pledge? Um, and also any reporting that you might be doing so there are the three sort of general areas that, that I think businesses can if you know if you want to organize yourself as a business around sustainability I think that's not a bad framework to have yeah and I think um and I guess it's natural that when in our world we think a lot about regulations and we think about deadlines and that's the kind of the gun that's put to people's heads to get on and do something and, and so the focus I think with a lot of firms initially tends to be around well what's the product need to do and 
uh, what classification do we give ourselves and how do we do our prospectus disclosures and that kind of stuff. So it's quite, I guess, in your world, the second pillar um, gets a lot of focus, but it's it's the first pillar that really interests me in, in many ways, this idea of the internal operations and how you, how you, if you, particularly if you are promoting or running ESG and sustainability products that you actually can demonstrate within your own business that it's something that's important to you. First pillar, second. Firstly, let's talk about maybe some of the deadlines that are coming up when we think about um, SFDR and sustainability and the way that funds are run and the way that they disclose what they do. What's what's the bad news? The bad news. Um, I, I, you know, I think there's there's sort of a, a not very amusing joke is probably too strong a word when you think about SFDR and EU taxonomy and deadlines you know kind of when is a deadline not a deadline you know, when, when it's a level two deadline under SFDR um, and unfortunately we have had some delays uh, along the way so most people I think listening will probably know that when it comes to disclosures for financial market participants under the sustainable finance disclosure regulation the first deadline for the level one set of regulations was the 10th of March last year so huge amount of work um, a lot of scrambling to, to achieve that deadline because it was all new right it was all quite a new way of looking at things um, and since then we sort of have a, a you know a path a pathway of deadlines if you like after after that. Um, so right now, I guess uh, what we're, we're looking at um, for big ticket item deadlines um, is everything that's coming out of the EU action plan on sustainable finance. And, and in, in general terms, that as a piece of policy coming from Europe is one that has moved at really remarkable pace. Um, if you think back to the high-level expert group on sustainable finance, when they issued their first report um, in, in, in 2018, we had the first piece of legislation coming out, you know, only a couple of months after that. And I don't know, Danny, if, if you've ever seen any kind of policy and rulemaking move at such a pace in Europe. And I think that just goes to show um, the political that the strength of, of political will driving the, the whole sustainable finance agenda. Um, yeah, that's, so that's a great point. Yeah. You know, so that's that, that's some kind of real real background there as, as, as to how quick this is moving. So when something moves as quickly as that and you're dealing with regulation and really technical rules, you know, I think it's inevitable that there is going to be some, some heartbreak along the way um, to try and get it right and to try and come up with a solution that works for everyone. And you have to remember that SFDR and taxonomy SFDR in particular, it covers financial market participants in different disciplines. So it's banks, it's insurance companies, it's asset managers, it's funds, and they all work really differently and run their products really differently. Um, so it is really not, not to be un underestimate the significant challenge um, that trying to, to get these rules in a workable, workable format are. Um, so, so that's that's sort of my my take in terms of oh, well, why are we dealing with, with kind of deadlines that are moving? Um, yeah. Well, what's coming up right now, I guess, um, it, well, in, in, in sequential order, I guess, um, we do have a, a deadline for integrating sustainability risks and factors into the organization of um, AFIMs, of USITs and MIFID firms. So under the 
uh, AFMD and UCITS regime. There's a deadline coming up on the 2nd of August to look at that. What will that mean in practice? Certainly looking at your business plans and updating it. Um, but more importantly, and this goes back to the point you made, Danny, earlier, what does that actually mean for what you are doing internally? You can write it in your business plan easily, but what are you doing to back that up? So um, I think that's a, a well-made point you made earlier. Um, the NIFA deadline is, is further out. It's the 22nd of November. I think as I talk about MIFID then, the other point to think about is the EET, um, flavour of the month at the moment, the European ESG template. So that's around facilitating exchange of data between product manufacturers and distributors really to fulfil um, the ESG requirements under SFDR. So, so um, that's coming up on the 1st of June. So I know a huge amount of work uh, is going into that at the moment. Yeah. Um, on SFDR and taxonomy, we have... Um, coming up at the end of the year, uh, the pre-contractual disclo template disclosures for products which are disclosing under Article 8 and Article 9. Uh, so that for me is, is keeping me really busy with, with, with people looking at that. Um, you also have website disclosures aligned with that. So I think the way it's structured is the pre-contractual templates are, are supposed to be as sort of concise um, as they can be. And the website is where you're going to put a little bit more detail, a little bit more explanation. Um, you also have a periodic disclosure um, deadline on the 1st of January. Obviously, that will be, uh, you know, you don't have to produce the reports until till four months after the year end. So that will be a little bit pushed out. So uh, pre-contractual disclosure is definitely uh, in the line of fire. On the 1st of January, you've, you've got disclosures for the second, third and fourth environmental objectives under the EU taxonomy, um, uh, which is sustainable use and protection of water, circular economies, pollution prevention and control uh, and protection and restoration of, of biodiversity. So um, some hard and fast deadlines in there and really complex technical stuff. But I think it, if you wanted to sort of go to one resource that sets these deadlines out quite neatly, um, that's the SFDR and taxonomy ones, you can take a look at the ESA supervisory statement on SFDR that issued on the 24th of March, just gone, um, which has a nice table at the back, which sets out a lot of the deadlines in, in a neat format. Yeah, I think, and you can dissuade me of this, Anne, but the, there was a real political and is a real political imperative to get this done quickly. And so it feels to me like the deadlines are set, knowing that they're very ambitious and that the chances are that the technical detail to back them up probably won't be ready on time or certainly won't be ready and tested before the deadline comes. But it's nearly more important to just get on with it, get the deadline out there and do, you, do as much as you can for that date. And if it's got to slip back, whether that's through some sort of a, you know, an ESA letter advising of expectations of supervision around the, what's going to happen on, on the transition date. Uh, well, then maybe that's good enough. But the, the imperative being to get the date done and get the deadline done and be and be seen to be moving quickly and kind of fix the rest of it as you go. So that the first set of if it's disclosures or whatever may not be perfect, but will get better over time. Is that your sense that it's kind of yeah, I think and then fix it after? I think that's right, Danny. I think that's almost what I'd like to see happen, really. I don't want, wouldn't like to see any momentum being lost in terms of organising all this information and getting to grips with the technicality of what's needed. Um, and and I, I would welcome the the um, 
the the supervisory approach that you've just outlined there um, in the sense that, right, we're, we're not going to be perhaps too harsh at the start because we don't have all the ducks in the row anyway. Um, but better to have it done, as you say, um, and, and be a work in progress to improve on than, than not to done at all. Yeah, I'd really like to see that approach. Yeah, I think when it comes to impositions of you know deadlines for, for transition or what have you, uh, it's easy to get very focused on that date and maybe lose sight of the fact that this regime is going to be around for an awfully long time, most likely, uh, and maybe good enough is good enough for day one, and then you work towards making it better rather than trying to have perfection on day one when that's not really going to happen. Yeah, um, so. yeah. I mean, it's hugely complex um, work that's being done, particularly around the EU taxonomy. I mean, nothing like this has ever been really done before a classification system for for economic activities um contribute to, to environmental and social objectives so yeah it's 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 really tricky stuff um and already we've seen a couple of of uh, notifications coming out from these um you probably have seen them in you know in, in the last month or five weeks actually being oh well hang on a second um there might be a tweak to the the principal adverse impact regime uh, and we're just going to take another look at the taxonomy disclosures to make sure we got those right. Um, and, uh, you know, also, sorry, wasn't there a change at the end of uh, the very end of last year about introducing gas and nuclear into the EU taxonomy, which was um, caused kind of uproar between uh, the, the scientific community and, and the political community. Um, but we might want to address that from a disclosure perspective by putting something in there as well. So already... You know, we only got the, the draft regulatory technical standards out, fingers crossed that they were pretty much going to stay the same until they, they went through the the um, the legislative approval process at European level. Um, and now already we're kind of getting murmurings that, well, hang on a second, there could be a tweak or two here. So that's I think that's just the way it is. And we sort of have to accept it. Difficult to organize and manage. Um, you know, your disclosures as, a, as an asset manager or a fund management company, I fully agree. Uh, but, I, but I think we kind of have to accept that that's the way it is. Yeah, and, and do as, as well as you can for day one. And I'm, I'm right in thinking, Anne, that a lot of the focus in terms of the regulatory approach at the moment is around disclosure. So take sustainability into account when you are making your investment decisions. Disclose how you take sustainability into account and sustainability risk into account when you're making investment decisions. And then if you're going to categorize yourself and your products as being particularly ESG focused, then we need to make sure you're not greenwashing. So we need to make sure that they did, you know, that there, that there's a measure for how ESG, how sustainable your products are. And that's that's generally where the, the focus is at the moment, is it? Yeah, it is. And again, I think that was very much uh, a decision taken at um you know, at a political level in Europe, how do we how do we um, make how do we push this agenda? Right? How do we push this sustainable finance agenda? We know where we want to get to. We want we want we want all the decarbonisation done that we're committing to done. How do we get the financial institutions to row in behind this? Um, what policy levers can we pull to get them to do this? Uh, and I think disclosure is one policy lever, even though it's kind of the end of the process as you've described there it, it, the important bit is what are you doing with your product and where is that money going um but if we're forcing people to disclose what they're doing well then they're really going to have to think about it and i think that was quite a deliberate decision on, on the part of the policymakers to do it that way um you know because in 
the way I look at it is that because, as we said, a lot of the decisions around integrating sustainability for a business or for individuals, you know, a lot of them, some of them are easy. We all have something that we're doing that we can do well, you know, make some easy decisions. But a lot of these decisions are, are, are really difficult. Um, and if you can if you can encourage and nudge people in the right direction by making a business case for it for them firstly if they can see the business case for it and um, but secondly then a regulatory imperative pushing in them in the right direction i think both of those combined will be very strong drivers yeah it really is nudging better behaviors and expecting or hoping that the money will follow so instead of saying you must cut your carbon footprint by x amount or you must run the business this way or that way it's more well you know if you're going to promote yes you you have to make sure that you're, you know, you're not greenwashing and that it is genuinely a product that's sustainable. And this is where investors' appetite is. So investors will see where the best uh, sustainable products are and how, uh, how they're living up to the label that they've put on themselves. And that's where the money will go. And that if your competitors see that that's, you're, you're able to draw in assets because of the approach that you take, well, then maybe that'll encourage them to do the same. Yeah, definitely. And I think then just the point you made there about labeling is another good one to um to just uh, talk about for, for a minute. The, obviously, SFDR isn't a product labeling, uh, isn't a product labeling regime. Uh, the right way to think of it is if you are a fund that can disclose against Article 8 requirements or Article 9 requirements. So it's already what your product is doing. And then you disclose um, aligned with Article 8 or Article 9. It's not a product label. Um, and I know the regulators are, uh, you know, it's, it's a constant refrain from the regulators that SFDR isn't a product labeling regime. And it's absolutely not. I mean, one of the other initiatives under the EU Action Plan on Sustainable Finance is a product labeling regime. Um, you have the proposals for the eco label for retail financial products. Now, that's a completely different um you know, completely different work stream under the action plan um, and not without its own challenges. Um, so that's, it's really for retail products. So it uses and, and retail AFES. Um, and then you've got the green bond standard. So they're, they're, the, they're the kind of concrete examples of, of product labeling that's coming down the tracks. But, but I think there's a reason why they've, they've started with the disclosures and, and, and are still working on the product labeling regimes. Um, because as I said, they're not without the challenges. Uh, absolutely. And then if we look at the other side of the fence then, so the, what you call your pillar one, the internal this is more fundamentally about how the one management company or the Mifid firm or the law firm or the audit and accounting firm, how they run their own business in a way that's sensitive to sustainability uh, needs. Um, what, are the, what are the kind of steps that you see firms taking and do they readily embrace them or are they, are they drag kicking and screaming? Hmm. I'd say I'd say a mix. I mean, I think sustainability is a strategic priority for for businesses across all industries at the moment. Um, in the professional services space, which I guess is where where the the, the funds um, industry really sits. Uh, I mean, there's lots lots of different initiatives. I would say that firms are are in a different place on their journey towards internal sustainability. Something like decarbonisation is is high on the list in terms of tackling it. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that is because it's probably one of the ones that can be measured um, with more certainty at the moment. Uh, and that's because you have a sort of, um, I guess it's, it's 
pretty much a, the globally accepted agreed way of measuring um, carbon emissions is the greenhouse gas protocol. Everybody is is comfortable with that and using it. Um, uh, and as as we know, if you can, if you can measure something, it's far easier to manage it. That you know that saying, what gets um, what gets measured gets managed. Um, and and I think you know, so I think firms in terms of decarbonisation, that's something that that is on everyone's radar now. Um, if you look at so for professional services firms, I think there's an interesting conversation around. Um, really, you know, we're not high emitting industries in the way that a manufacturing industry is. Um, you know, cement manufacturers, a steel manufacturer, very hard to abate industries, hard to transition. For something like professional services firms, um, I, I guess it's kind of buildings and operations emissions, uh, but business travel would be um, a, a big ticket item to address as well. Um, so people setting their science-based targets for emissions, for example, I think business travel comes up time and again. So I think there's some interesting conversations to be had around that <laughs> as an issue, as an industry, um, and, and particularly in the wake of having two, two plus years um, where people have adapted to, to not having to travel or not being able to travel. Um, so I think that's, that's something to watch as well. Um, yeah. Also firms that are um, part of a, an international or global organization and have an office in, in seven, you know, different jurisdictions or have a, you know, a footprint in, in Dublin or Ireland um, compared to their, their other offices. I think that's, that's a, a significant issue as well. Um, and of course, if you're in a position where you are perhaps leasing or renting your premises, you may have less control over um, what can be done um, from an energy efficiency perspective in, in your building rather than if you're a building owner. So there, there's kind of three, I suppose, issues that, that for professional services firms in the funds industry we see coming up a lot. Yeah, I remember when I was in the central bank, we moved down to the new on the keys during that time and they were quite good at engaging with staff as the, the design and build of the and fit out of the building progressed. And it did seem to me that that sustainability and environmental impact was a big part of what they uh, certainly a big part of what they would report back to staff on. So things like gathering rainwater, um, the, that kind of gold uh, colored cladding that's on the building is mm -hmm. reflect light and heat to, to make the building uh, cheaper to cool as opposed to, to heat. Um, and even things like then how the building and the, the staff would engage with the neighborhood that they were relocating down to was, was part of that conversation as well. So um, I guess for professional services firms, the building is a big part of where you can take action uh, to help on a sustainability front. Yeah, yeah, exactly. From from an environmental and an energy impact, as you say, I mean, clearly there's a range of sustainability issues um, not just focused on energy um, that, that you can talk about and, and the piece you mentioned there about, about the community around where, where, where you're operating as well, I think is a really important part as well as, um, you know, your employee well-being, well-being diversity, inclusion, uh, all those kind of issues, I think are, uh, I think businesses and firms are, are far more inclined um, and, and willing to to tackle these issues now. Um, and I think as, as kind of the generational shifts move along to, to millennials and, and, and next gen, it, it's, it's, it's something that is expected. And I think it's something that increasingly has been proven to enhance talent attraction and retention if you're a business that's dealing with, with these issues well um, and being transparent about it. 
Oh, that was my next question. <laughs> I wonder yeah. when it came the recruitment side of things, if you're a big professional services firm and you're doing your milk rounds and you've got a nice shiny building, that all helps. But what extent does what you do to make the world a better place become part of the conversation as you're trying to recruit in, in a market that's pretty competitive? So, so from what I'm hearing, it is, it is something that's being, being asked about and thought about on both sides of that equation. So I think employees are expecting um, and feeling able to ask employ- prospective employers, well, what are you doing in relation to uh, diversity and inclusion? Um, have you got policies on this? And then on the other side, employers are expecting these questions to be asked um, and, and it is a driver. And, and as I've said before, you know, is, is it um, how, how genuine or authentic is that driver? I, I mean, I will take any driver to um, to tackle a sustainability issue within a business really well. Um, and if it's if it's something that a business is aware, well, I'm going to attract, um, you know, really talent and I'm going to retain my existing staff if I'm addressing these kind of issues really well. I think I think that. Um, is is welcome as a driver to um, having positive resources in place for, for employees. Presumably it, it feeds in on the other side as well in terms of when a client is choosing a professional services firm or, or maybe when a large institutional investor is choosing an asset manager to, to place their assets with, um, that part of their due diligence is around the sustainability of the business that they're looking to engage and, and how well you're able to answer those questions could have a, a big impact on your ability to succeed in an RFP. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm looking at that at the moment, actually, for, for professional services firms. And I'm coming across some interesting um, interesting reports, actually, that have tried to measure just by asking, you know, asking um, professional services firms um how often are you being asked to include information on your sustainability practice practices uh, in RFPs? Um, and I think the figure I looked at now, this is, I think was a report from 2018. So it's, it's probably even more by now. I think about 85% of firms said that they're being asked in, in, RF, in RFPs uh, to I- include information around their sustainability practices. I would love to know how that answer is weighted compared to fees. <laughs> but anyway... That's for another day. Yeah. Um, so listen, let's move towards wrapping up. I'm interested in kind of anything that's particularly innovative that you've seen firms do, either if it's in terms of that second pillar, how they disclose their approach to products, or on the first pillar in terms of how they, they manage their own operations for, for more sustainability. So anything that's particularly uh, innovative or anything that's particularly challenging for firms? Any little nuggets for us on those? Yeah, so I mean, I've mentioned a couple of them already, um, and I sit on the steering committee of um, a voluntary industry initiative called the Green Team Network, which uh, was a, a winner of uh, an Irish Funds uh, Sustainathon, so sort of a, a competitive initiative around sustainability issues a couple of years back, um, and, and we, you know, we, we've been looking at. Uh, across um, the Irish funds industry and member firms and um, how, how people are, are dealing with sustainability issues, ma- mainly internally, actually. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of, uh, I think businesses can get a lot of support and a groundswell of, of enthusiasm from, from their staff uh, through 
green green team committees actually seem to be a place for a lot of, of good initiatives um, spring from. Uh, so that's something that, that we're seeing more and more. Um, I think encouraging peer-to-peer -peer networking is, is really important because um, not all of this should be seen as, as giving yourself a competitive edge, I would think, particularly on the internal piece. Obviously, the external piece is a little bit different. Um, so peer-to-peer -peer networking around sharing information about, right, well, how did I get the latest, uh, you know, ISO accreditation certification for, for my building energy management? Um, how, did I, how did I get on that journey and what resources um, or support did I use along the way? Uh, so they're, they're two quite... Um, interesting uh, uh, aspects that, that we're, we're seeing at the moment. Um, on the external piece, um, I mean, a lot of it is driven by tackling the, the regulation at the moment. Um, and I think that is, um, I think that can be a challenge between complying with what needs to be done versus being really innovative. <laughs> um, yeah. There is, I, I hope people are, are kind of seeing beyond that and not getting bogged down with the disclosure because there is a lot of talk in the bank space actually at the moment around having to deal with so much disclosure um, that, that it's difficult to, to get the resources to, to look at, at, at being innovative and, and, and creating the, the, the kind of in, innovative products. Um, but I think a good, a good sort of message to take away is that there is still quite a gap between intent, action and impact. Um, and that I think really is where we want to go. We want to be actually having meaningful impact with um, the financial products that we, we create, where the flow of capital is going to, to support um, a, a circular economy, a more um, carbon, low carbon um, and resource um, sustainable economy. So I, th I think I think another, yeah, that that's another good point to mention is kind of the the the, the gap that still exists between intent, action, uh, and impact. Yeah, I think from my Tuplin's work, uh, the asset management industry and financial services we're an agency business. We're at quite a remove from the people that we are hopefully helping the investors, whether they're saving for a pension or saving for a child's education or whatever their own saving needs are. We're not curing cancer. We're not, you know, seeing a, a sick animal come in and, and watch them walk out. Uh, so it's difficult to see the positive impact that we can have because we never see the whites of the eyes of the clients that we work for. And I think where you can have a green team committee or carry out initiatives like that, you can see a positive impact from the business and see that the business does something that makes a difference. And whether that's, you know, a, a suite of products that are, very much sustainability focused or whether it's how the business runs itself and its own corporate social responsibility. But it's really important to give people, and that's everybody from the top down, a sense of uh, the ability to do good through their business because it's harder to get that uh, when you're so removed from the ultimate clients that you work for. So another, another thing to take into account. Uh, Great. Uh, and listen, let's wrap it up there. Uh, one last quick reminder on the, the, the next date that people should bear in mind for all of this deluge of sustainability uh, regulation that as they, they try and keep in mind the good that they're doing in the world when they're bogged down in disclosures and prospectus updates. Uh, this is the one that they need to bear in mind at the moment, is it? 
the executive August, yeah, for integrating sustainability risks and factors into your operations for AFMD and USITS. And then there's the MIFID deadline a bit later. Uh, and then the next one, I think, to have an eye on is the pre-contractual disclosure templates for the 1st of January. Now, as I said, we, we've had a few um, letters issued by the ESAs, ESAs saying, well, hang on a second, we can see some tweaks already we need to make. Um, and also, you probably uh, will have seen the questions Um that went from the ESAs to the European Commissions on some net points around SFDR. So even the ESAs themselves saying to the Commission, hang on a second, we need a bit of clarification on this before we can we can press go. Um, so I would keep those dates in mind, um, but also stay tuned in uh, to the regulatory and supervisory commentary that's running alongside the, the clock ticking towards the deadlines. So as your heart sinks when you that your disclosure and work has been undone and you now need to revisit it because somebody's changed their mind. Just remember that you're you're doing it in the greater good. Okay? Doing it for the greater good. And none, none of the work that's been done already um, is, is, is wasted work. Absolutely not. No. Great. Thank you very much, Anne. It was wonderful having you on the Quest podcast and, and uh, great to have your time and your insights on how things are progressing in this front. Yeah, not at all, Danny. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, thank you, podcast listeners, for tuning in to this episode of the Equest Podcast. We we'll catch you next time. The Equest Podcast: Funds, Industry, Conversations.